Howdy, everyone. Welcome to Dangerous Thoughts on Unsafe Space. I'm Carter Laren. Uh, Dangerous Thoughts is a show we do every Wednesday where we help explain what the hell went wrong with Western civilization. Uh, where did the, the philosophical and psychological necrosis come from? And how can we use the enlightenment principles of reason and individualism to rekindle the Western spirit, fight the globalist elites and their minions who are bent on destroying it? Uh, we are streaming, I think, today on Rumble, which we've just started to do, uh, and on Twitter, which we've also just started to live stream on. But as usual, on YouTube, Odyssey, DLive, and did I say Utreon? I don't think I said Utreon on that as well. Uh, today, we're going to be, we're going to have a discussion um, about the concerning rise of tensions between Russia and the United States over Ukraine. Uh, this might this discussion might perhaps challenge the the narrative of the, of the corporate press and i've got a special guest that's going to join me in just a moment but before we start just a couple of reminders if you don't subscribe to unsafe space uh you may be subject to economic sanctions and i can't promise that the military option isn't on the table so uh please do the smart thing there and subscribe uh before i have to go find lockheed martin as a sponsor uh, i do want to thank the financial supporters without you uh, we really wouldn't be able to make this show or any show on Unsafe Space, so please take a moment to go to unsafespace.com. Uh, click on some support us button or something to that effect. Uh, all financial supporters get to be in our Discord server so that they can yell at me directly. Uh, and depending on your name, uh, level of support, you get your name and credits, you get a cool little mug, that kind of stuff. All right, let's get into the meat of this discussion. We're going to have a discussion about the situation in Ukraine. And before I introduce our guest... I want to um, I want to talk to those of you who tend towards conservatism, who happen to be in the audience. And I know it's not a lot of you, but there's some. I'm just going to ask you to remember, uh, you have spent the last couple of years in opposition to the deep state on items like COVID policy, some of you about the election. Um, you have recognized the corruption and malfeasance within a variety of three-letter agencies on a lot of topics. You've even been called Russian bots yourself. So keep an open mind and consider that maybe, just maybe, the deep state is your enemy on the Ukraine situation as well. Um, and beware of the false dichotomy. Just because someone might oppose U.S. foreign policy doesn't mean that they're supporting Russia. Both can actually be wrong, it turns out. That's how the world works. So with all of that, I am honored to introduce Scott Horton. Scott is the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of antiwar.com, host of Antiwar Radio, as well as the Scott Horton Show podcast. He's the author of several books, including Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and his most recent, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. Uh, you can follow him at uh, on Twitter at Scott Horton Show, or you can go to scotthorton.org. Scott, Beverly, put him on screen. There we go. <laughs> Scott, welcome. Thank you for joining. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, uh, let's just dive in. Let's unravel some narratives. Um, I don't, you know, it's it's always boring to say let's start in the 1780s. Uh, so I'm not sure we have to spend a lot of time on ancient, ancient history. Um, but uh, I, you know, I read something about of yours in which you talked about kind of the history of Crimea and Crimea has been used as part of this narrative of, of Russian aggression in, in more recently. So maybe just get us caught up on the recent history uh, of Russia and the Ukraine and why the U S 
alleges to have some interest in what the hell's going on. Yeah. Uh, great question. And, and if I can, I'd like to go back actually to your start and your preface there, especially sure. in, um, you know, kind of reaching out to and, and talking to the conservative right. Remember, it was Donald Trump that said we should get along with Russia. And then they framed him for treason with Russia for daring to say that. Well, and for daring to run against Hillary Clinton. And they were trying <laughs> yes. to get him. But the point is that, um, you know, he was right. And at one point he said that, geez, you know, really, I don't know why everybody's so upset. I talked to Henry Kissinger and he told me that I was smart and right and that this is what we should be doing is tilting toward Russia to balance against China. Now, me, I'm not a China hawk, but I would point out that Henry Kissinger is essentially, you know, was Nelson Rockefeller's man, is the centrist foreign policy establishment's now grayest graybeard. And yep. this is the guy who advised Nixon back when they split China away from Russia and made friends with China 50 years ago. At that point, China was the weaker power and we were using them to balance against the Soviet Union. Now the same guy was saying, yes, this is our real politique. This is our real, uh, as they call it, realist foreign policy as opposed to neoconservative foreign policy that says that we want to have this amoral take and balance powers against each other in order to keep any one power from dominating in Asia or Europe. Yep. Other than America, we can dominate everywhere, but that doesn't count. Right. So, <laughs> uh, in other words... This is not just the point of view from antiwar.com. This is the point of view from John Mearsheimer, the dean of the realist school at the University of Chicago. It's the point of view of Jack Matlock, the second to last ambassador to the Soviet Union. It's the point of view of Ray McGovern, who was the former chief of the CIA's Soviet division back in the battle days of the Cold War. It's the point of view of a lot of people who are real experts on this. For that matter, it's the point of view of Pat Buchanan, and the paleoconservative, yep. who were all hawks against the communists. But as soon as the Soviet Union ended, they said, that's it. We should abolish NATO and come home. So it's this is, you know, uh, it shouldn't be taken as some kind of alien or fringe or even libertarian position as much as just it's the position of the people who are not the hawks and are not hell bent on this conflict. And there's a lot of people like that, regardless of the way TV portrays it. Um, you could Google right now and look up John Mearsheimer gave a speech called Why the Crisis in Ukraine is All the West's Fault from 2015. And, you know, again, he's the dean, as they call him, the, the most credible leading member of America's realist school of foreign policy at the University of Chicago. So, you know, uh, I think it's important, especially to bring up what Trump had said here repeatedly about why can't we get yeah. along with Russia? You know, right. their alien is not, their civilization is not so alien from ours. The com the days of the communists are over. It's been 30 years. Just last Christmas was the 30th anniversary, the final end of the Soviet Union. So when people talk about, oh, there's a crisis over there, there's a crisis over there. The burden is on the Americans to explain why, one, this is all their fault, not our sides at all. And two, why it should be our business now. And instead, all those questions are left begging. The, the, the uh, whole situation is framed as Russia is about to attack their neighbor. Will we get involved now or won't we?
Will we defend this poor, weak country, even though it risks war with Russia? This is just, it's a lie in the setup. It's the same question as, do you think that we should attack Iraq now? Or should we give the UN weapons inspectors a little bit more time and then attack him? Those are your two choices. You don't get a third one. Uh, That's, you know, the, the hawks on one side and the doves on the other. And you're supposed to pick. And then, but as you were implying there, when you're talking about COVID or when you're, when you're talking about Russiagate, for example, the truth is not somewhere in between. These people are liars, right? Yep. The, the Russiagate thing was 100% false. Carter Page, it turns out, was a loyal CIA asset. And every time he ever spoke to a powerful or influential Russian in business or government, he went straight to the CIA and debriefed them about every syllable out of their mouths. And then the FBI pretended for three years that this guy was Putin's handler of Trump and that he was how we knew that our president was a guilty traitor. Uh, And the whole thing was just an absolute lie from the beginning. So that's how much credibility these people deserve. The people who lied us into Iraq, who lied us into Libya, who lied us into Syria, Hell, who lied us into Afghanistan um, and who uh, have essentially taken all of the aggressive positions here and put Putin in the situation of having to respond. Now, now I'll get to the details in a second because that's what you asked me. But just to make it clear, I'm not endorsing everything Putin ever did in his life or with his presidency, but I am about to make the case that this is all Bill Clinton, et cetera's fault, that they picked this fight and that everything and that the very worst things that Putin has done, especially his intervention in Syria and in eastern Ukraine, that those things are reactions to absolutely horrific American foreign policies, policies that never should have happened in the first place. In both of those cases, choices made by Barack Obama. Okay, so you know, that's, that ought to help make it easier for right-wingers too, that a lot of the worst decisions here were sure. made by the Democrats, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, Obama's, Obama's uh, hand in Kiev, I'm sure you'll you'll touch on, but like, right. that this is- But even go, to, even go to Libya, you know, Vladimir yep. Putin stepped down and was cooling his heels in the parliament as the speaker of the parliament for a little while. They thought it might be for two terms or something. And it was his man, Medvedev, the new guy, was the young guy was in there. And Hillary Clinton, remember, came with the reset button, the big red reset button, and said, let's get along with Russia. Mitt Romney's a kook. He wants 80s foreign policy. You know, Mitt Romney, who's nothing but George W. Bush, essentially, right? Not Donald Trump. Uh, He wants to have this hawkish foreign policy. And the Barack Obama people, they know better than that. They want to do this big reset. But then what happened? The first thing she did was she convinced Medvedev to vote for the UN Security Council resolution, or at least abstain, I forget now, I need to check on this. At, at least abstain, I think he even voted for the UN Security Council resolution authorizing the no-fly zone over Benghazi on the out- outright ridiculous trumped up lie that uh, Muammar Gaddafi's forces were about to massacre every last man, woman, and child, 700,000 people in the city the size of Charlotte. So he had to intervene to save them. And then within days, They said, oh, well, you know, protect the civilians ultimately means regime change in Tripoli or they'll never be safe. Right. And so she completely screwed screwed Medvedev and got him in so much trouble with Putin 
And that helped to encourage Putin's return to the presidency after only one term in the parliament, where the idea was that he was going to do at least two and help to build up this guy Medvedev as his eventual successor and this kind of thing. And Hillary completely humiliated him and ruined that and brought Putin back early. Right. So whose fault is that? Right. It's well, and she destroyed Democrat Libya. Fault. The like. American's fault. That's whose fault it yeah. is for starting an aggressive war against, yep. I mean, Gaddafi's Italy, I mean, Gaddafi's uh, 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 Libya, which had come in from the cold, which George W. Bush had made a deal with only seven years before and was cooperating with the Americans in the war against Al-Qaeda. What Obama do? He took Al-Qaeda's side, the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group and Ansar al-Sharia against Gaddafi, the secular dictator. I mean, this is madness, right? Yep. So then you go, yep. well, that power mad, power monger Putin returned early to the presidency. Okay, but that's only one-tenth of one percent his fault and the rest of it, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton's fault for their lousy decision making, you know, and yep. and it's the same thing for for Libya and Ukraine. Now, I don't want to sound like I'm dancing around, it, but I just want to get to the point that like, you know, Ron Paul is a patriot. Nobody thinks that he's a commie. Nobody thinks that he's Michael Moore, the left wing Hollywood libertine. Right. Yep. Ron Paul is a patriot. He's an Air Force veteran. He's a Republican congressman of however many you know decades you add it all up there. And he's just known better than this from the beginning. As simple as that. That's it. He just knows better. And so here's what Ron Paul knows and what Ron Paul told you then. America's overthrowing the government in Kiev in 2014. Ron Paul went on Fox News and said this and warned that this was happening. He says, yep. this is the second time in 10 years. The Orange Revolution was W. Bush did it in 2004. This is now America doing another coup against the same guy, Yanukovych, who is the democratically elected in a fair and free election, free and fair election in 2010. And um, as, you know, confirmed by Russian, I mean, uh, uh, German and other Western monitors and so forth. And uh, they used a bunch of Nazis to do it. Everybody yep. should be familiar with the F the EU phone call by Victoria Newland. Now, if you ask CNN, they go, oh no, a diplomat used a bad word. <laughs> that wasn't the point. <laughs> the point was, why was she saying F the EU? She was saying the Germans are taking too long to do the coup d'etat. And we are going to push them out of the way and we're going to do the damn coup d'etat ourselves. F the EU. They're taking yep. too long. That was the whole thing. And people can listen to that thing on YouTube right now. The whole thing is there. Where Victoria Newlands is Robert Kagan's wife, Barack Obama's uh, deputy uh, secretary of state for European affairs. She's on the phone with Jeffrey Pyatt, the ambassador to Ukraine. This is leaked in early February 2014 two weeks before the coup, essentially. And there she's saying, we don't want Klitschko, the boxer, who's currently the mayor of Kiev. We don't want him in there. We want him on the outside doing public relations. Yats is the guy, Yatsenyuk. We want him to be the new prime minister. And we want Tannibach. You got to get on the line with Tannibach and put him together. Google Tannibach. There he is with a Hitler salute and the SS lightning bolts behind him. He's the founder of the Social Nationalist Party. Ahem, ahem, 
okay? And these are the guys who Victoria Newland and John McCain went to the Maiden Square in the winter of 2013, 14 there and passed out sandwiches and cookies and gave speeches praising them all for their bravery, et cetera. And it was just a couple of weeks later, they went ahead and do, did the coup anyway. I mean, they were caught red-handed. The Russians, presumably the Russians, had intercepted that phone call and posted it on YouTube. And they went ahead anyway. Yep. And they did the coup and, and they did it. And, and guess who became the new prime minister? Yatsenyuk. And guess oh, who stayed on the that. outside to do public relations? Klitschko. And it was hmm. exactly what she had said. And they used real Nazis to do it. And I don't mean like shirtless, shoeless, Alabama skinheads from the backwoods of a small town, you know, the outskirts of a small town. We're talking about the proud grandsons of the Galatian SS who perpetrated the Holocaust in the Second World War. And they're, they idolize this guy, Stepan Bandera, who served Hitler in the Galatian SS as they massacred Jews and Poles by the at least tens, I think hundreds of thousands. Um, and uh, so... Um, as a result of that, well, the first thing that the new coup d'etat government did was they outlawed Russian as an official language. Well, that's like half the population speaks Russian and not Ukrainian. And yep. so that was essentially an outright declaration of full-scale culture war from one half of the country against the other. And they backed down a couple of days later, but the damage was, was done. The intent was laid bare there. And then the yep. next thing that happened was a few of the pro-Western-leaning former presidents, three or four of them, signed a letter saying, now is our chance to kick the Russians out of the Sevastopol naval base. Now, here's where we get to the 1780s. Right at the time that America's making peace with Great Britain at the end of the Revolutionary War in 1783 was when the Russians were kicking the Turks out of the Crimean Peninsula and seizing it for Russia. Okay, so in other words, if New York State and Massachusetts and Virginia belong to the USA, Crimea belongs to Russia. You know, if you believe in nation states at all, I'm an anarchist personally, but I also like to argue with all other things being equal here on the planet we live on. Um, in a world of nation states, Crimea is part of the Russian nation state, and it has been for, you know, before, since before the US Constitution was ratified. Now, the reason that it belonged to Ukraine at all was just a funny quirk of history, basically, which was that after Stalin died, Khrushchev needed the support of the Ukrainian Communist Party in order to replace him and rise to power. So they say drunk one night, I don't know. The Secretary General of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union issued an edict. I know, you're really impressed, right? This is the same thing as if, I don't know. I Jesus. feel like you're... I feel like said, you're describing law. Dr. Strangelove, but okay. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, no, the general secretary of the Communist Party mumbled something, and this is now, you know, <laughs> holy writ that all humans must to Ukraine, abide by forever, you know. Um, and so this is in 54. Now, Khrushchev gives Crimea to Ukraine, but at that time, everybody's answerable only to the Kremlin anyway, right? So it doesn't really make any difference. It's the USSR, you know? So it's a ceremonial then, title, basically. Yeah, sure, right. you, you can be yours, but that's nothing's right. yours. It was politics, you know, but yep. not really power, you know. Um, mm -hmm. Then at the end of the Cold War, again, 30 years ago, 
even Ukraine and Belarus went free and independent from the Soviet empire. The last little bit of it was completely gone. And the Russians signed a deal with the Ukrainians that you guys can stay the sovereign state over Crimea as long as you let us keep our naval base at Sevastopol and we'll pay a lease for it. Now that status quo held for 25 years yep. until Barack Obama used a bunch of Nazis to overthrow the government in Kiev for the second time in 10 years. And, and then, you know, shortly thereafter, all the former presidents say, now's our chance to kick the Russians out of there. At that point, Putin had his Navy essentially take their rifles and go outside and stand on street corners and just say, this belongs to us now. That's it. And they yep. ran the Ukrainians off. I don't know if you know this. I don't know if people listening know this, but it seems relevant to me. No one was killed in the takeover of the Crimean Peninsula. There was not an invasion. There was not a single battle. It was just, they went outside and said, yep, this is Russia again. And there's footage that I saw then. I don't know if anybody has this anymore. There's footage I saw then of the Russians firing two warning shots over the heads of some Ukrainian soldiers. And they tell them, you boys better turn around and go the other way. And the Ukrainian soldiers say, you know what? We agree with you that that's a great idea. And they turn around and go the other way. And that's it. That was the big battle of the invasion and the taking that's, of That's Crimea. the big annexation. Well, can we also just, I don't think people sure. understand the importance of the Sebastopol port to Russia too. This is not an mm -hmm. insignificant thing to say, we're going to take over the port and kick them out because this is, I think th this is their only, is it their only port on the Black Sea? Or it, it's like. That's right. It's their, yeah. And it's their only warm water port all year. That's ice free year round. Otherwise they got to yep. take off from the North, which is all iced in in the winter time. And this so it's is, a big you know, deal you know, to, to say they're going to kick direct them access to the Mediterranean. So, yeah, yeah and if you go back to, you know, again, this is all America instigating this just to stick it to the Russians, not to the Soviet Union, to the Russians. And you can read, you know, as a big new Brzezinski, you know, speaking of Henry Kissinger, his Democratic counterpart, you can read Brzezinski talking about this is how we really stick it to him. This is how we make them not even a regional power anymore, but just some tiny scumbag little country with no power at all. As we take that Crimean Peninsula away. And there's a clip, actually yep. a speech where Putin was joking around and saying, you know, we thought about how nice it would be to visit our NATO friends at the naval base down there for the holidays. And we just thought, you know what, that would be great, but it would be even nicer if we kept the base and they came to visit us. <laughs> yeah. So our American partners, we, we sure love them. We'd love to have them for the holidays at our Sevastopol Naval Base, you know? Now, um, for people who yeah. don't know, talk about the Crimean population, because this is not, my understanding is that the population in Crimea isn't uh, wanting to go back, be part of the Ukraine. This is not, there's not like a big, they're not like a lot of upset about Russia. Yeah. Well, and I think I, there must be some. I mean, uh, <clears throat> they held a plebiscite after the fact, to be clear here. The Russians went out and took the thing, and then they held a referendum. And the fair. referendum said that 90-something percent of the Crimeans wanted to join the Russian Federation. And then there were German polling firms and others that came out and verified that it was at least in the 80s. It was super-duper majorities. I mean, better than 75 percent. Way, way, way up there that wanted to join. Now, there is... I forget the exact demographics. I think it's something like 80% ethnic Russians 
and then uh, 10 or 15 percent Ukrainians and then the rest are Tatars, which I'm not an anthropologist or anything, but I'm pretty sure are Turkic folk from, you know, left over from back in the old Ottoman Empire, back when they ruled it, back when. Um, So I'm sure there were some of those, especially Ukrainians and some of those Tatars who really did not want to go back to Russian control. And so that sucks for them. But still, you know, dealing in a world of nation states. um, And look, for that matter, the Russians aren't, according to the world law that everybody signed on to after World War II, the Russians aren't supposed to change their borders through force and coercion. And that's breaking the law. But again, eh, it was uh, America's, it's against the law for America to overthrow the government in Kiev twice in 10 years too, and to use a bunch of Hitler-loving Nazis to do it. And so, you know, it was against the law when America went around the United Nations and used NATO to bomb Serbia, to break Kosovo off from Serbia. And it was against the international law when they waged these color-coded revolutions against many of Russia's allies in the near abroad, against Serbia, against Georgia, against, uh, I forget if it's Kyrgyzstan or Tajikistan, I think it was Kyrgyzstan in 2005, against uh, Hezbollah and the right-wing Christians in Lebanon in 2005. They tried in Belarus twice, again, Ukraine twice. And uh, all that's against the law too, except when it's the Americans doing it, it's supposedly just fine or whatever. So I don't want to, because I am explaining the other side of the story here. I don't want to, or I do want to stipulate where like what they did is against the rules. However, look at the context, right? And then- yep. What happened next is also very telling, is that the population of the far eastern Donbass region, bordering Russia in far eastern Ukraine, it's Donetsk and Luhansk are the two oblasts or counties or provinces or however they do it. Um, And they said, well, if you guys can do a coup d'etat and occupy a bunch of government buildings and overthrow the government, then we can occupy a bunch of government buildings and refuse to recognize the authority of your new government that you've you know, your new junta that you guys have installed in power here. And then the first thing that happened was the Kiev government declared a war on terrorism and invaded the east of their country and started a massive war and started slaughtering people. And then, you know, throughout that war in 2014 and 15, something like 15,000 people were killed. And the whole time, over and over and over again, I mean, this is like the first Russiagate hoax in a way, over and over and over throughout 2014, they claim that the Russians had invaded Ukraine. Top of the fold, top of the page, front page, New York Times. Russia invades Ukraine. But it just was never true. They never sent their infantry and they never sent their armored divisions across at all. All they did was send clandestine, you know, Spetsnaz or whatever other special operations type forces to help the people of Kiev to keep the, uh, pardon me, the people of the Donbass to keep Kiev and their power out. But- right. They did not in, send their troops in and send their infantry in. And at that point, Putin could have just taken a Sharpie and said, OK, this is Russia's new borders now. And, and all this Donbass belongs to us. And what are you going to do about it? He didn't do that. And in fact, in February of 2015, the people of the Donbass region held a big referendum and voted to join the Russian Federation. And then Putin told them no. And so we don't want you. And there are a few obvious reasons for that. I don't necessarily know all of them. But uh, first of all, 
the population of the far east of Ukraine is really old and mostly would be a bunch of pensioners and a net drain on the central state <laughs> rather than, uh, you know, uh, productive citizens. Uh, secondly, um, other than a few uh, important companies that make helicopter engines and rocket engines in the far east of Ukraine that Russia is dependent on, virtually the rest of all that industry is very old and decrepit and re would require massive investments to make profitable, especially if they got to compete in the world market against the Germans and things like that. It's just, there's not much there for the Russians to use other than, you know, in a counterproductive way, digging themselves a pit. Sure. And, then and third, that probably would have pissed off NATO too, I would imagine. Yeah. Well, and, and then the other thing is it would have pissed off you know, Russia's own security establishment in a way, probably, because if you absorb the, say, the eastern half of Ukraine, which is predominantly Russian speaking and Russian leaning, well, then what do you leave? You leave the western half of the country that's dominated not just by ethnic Russians, but by hardcore right wing nationalists now reacting in the aftermath of getting their clocks cleaned in a massive war and half of their country taken away. Right. So yep. then it, right now, he has a pro-Russian population that he can use to balance against Kiev, right? That forces some kind of compromise there. And so it could be noted, by the way, that the reason there's so many Russians in Ukraine is because of Joe Stalin, you know, did this deliberately under the Soviet Union and moved all these Russians in to dilute the power of the natives in Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, and, and Ukraine, and wherever else, too, in the stands in Central Asia, and all those other things. Just a fact of history. I mean, sure. you can't really blame those people who live there now for that, but that's, you know, why it's like that. Um, yeah. But so then, um, Donald Trump comes into power and where Barack Obama was afraid to arm the Nazis that he had used to overthrow the government there, Donald Trump was all in. And in fact, I know there's at least one quote of Don Jr. saying, now you can't call us Russian traitors because see all the weapons that we're pouring into Ukraine? So in other words, just like the FBI told CNN, well, if we can't overthrow him through the 25th Amendment, at least we want to be able to hem him in and prevent him from having a pro-Russian foreign policy. And so then that worked, right? If you point your finger and call Don Jr. a traitor six times, he will then arm the other side of whoever you accuse him of collaborating with to prove that he's innocent. And it's, you know, pretty black and white kind of- Reverse psychology one-on-one. Sort of yeah. Yeah. So- um. Now, they haven't sent, like, tanks and heavy artillery and stuff like that, but they have sent Javelin anti-tank missiles, which are a step up from the tow missiles they sent to Al-Qaeda in Syria, for example, which are wire-guided. These are radio-guided uh, or laser-guided, I guess, uh, anti-tank missiles. And, um, and then they've sent a lot of trucks and a lot of Green Berets for training and this kind of thing. And then also, throughout the Trump years, and I don't know if this was because of his orders, and in reaction to being falsely accused of treason with the Kremlin, or if he had no control over this whatsoever and the Pentagon's just doing whatever they do and who knows what they even told him, you know what I mean? But, right. um, which is entirely possible given what we right. know and have learned about the deep state. Yeah, that's true. And, and also about Donald Trump, that he has such ADD right. that they could get away with that because he's too busy watching CNN talk about, you know, the color of his right. tie or whatever. And, <laughs> and, not paying attention to anything important going on actually with power in the government. So, but anyway, the point being that the Navy uh, was extremely provocative in sailing warships into the Black Sea, the Oshtok Sea, and the Baltic Sea. 
and testing Russian defenses. And then the same thing with the U.S. Air Force, sending heavy nuclear bombers into right up to the borders of Russian airspace in the Black Sea, the Baltic Sea, and I guess in Eastern Europe, uh, over NATO countries in Eastern Europe, and in the Far East, the Sea of Ostok there is north of Japan by the city of Vladivostok on the far uh, Pacific coast of Russia. And I mean, imagine for a minute, well, I don't want to do the whole shoe on the other foot thing. I'll do that in a second. But just this one, sure. just imagine there were uh, heavy Russian H-bomb bombers constantly testing America's defenses off the coast of Virginia and California and Florida. And that's what we've been doing to them over and over and over and over again. We fly 12 and a half, 13 miles off the coast. 12 miles is international air, you know, recognized airspace. Like 12 and a half, 13 miles off the coast, watch them light up all their defenses to take a measure of their capabilities and all of these kinds of things. And as I'm almost certain this came from a Stars and Stripes article originally, but we wrote it up in antiwar.com the other day. Dave DeCamp wrote it up, was um, under Biden, all of these provocative flights have increased 120% over how it was during Trump and how it was wow. during Trump was already extremely provocative, right? So this, now finally we get to, this is why the Russians have been building up in Ukraine to signal that they want a ramping down of all these new arms going in there and they want assurances that America is not going to bring Ukraine into NATO. And so then, I mean, look at how the Americans handle it. As soon as they start building up their forces, on the 1st of November, the Washington Post screams, Russia building up invasion force preparing to invade Ukraine. Well, it's February the 2nd, as we're recording this, they haven't invaded Ukraine and they have explicitly yep. denied that they have any intention to invade Ukraine this whole time. And they haven't, <coughs> pardon me, they haven't been especially coy about it or anything. They're saying, look, um, and in fact, when the Americans first started making a big deal about this, the Ukrainians said, what are you talking about? They're not preparing to invade. They're moving troops around at their bases. They do that all the time. The Americans say they're building up right on Ukraine's border, but that's not true. They're building up 200 kilometers in, which is 150, 170 miles where their bases are there. Yep. The, the Americans make it sound like they're lining up on the border, preparing to cross the border. But this is a much more latent threat than that. And again, they say, look, we have no intention of invading Ukraine. And then they don't say, unless you refuse to give in to us. They're not saying that. What they are saying is, but now that we have your attention, you know, which is still, it's less of a threat. I mean, it's, it's partially one. I'm not trying to be naive or ask your audience to be naive. There's a bit of a threat of coercion there, but just a bit of one. It's a yeah. really, it's, it's meant to be a very latent threat. If you think of like Jack Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis, that which direction we tell our ships to sail, that's diplomatic language itself, right? And so, you know, when they do this, what exactly does it say when they move this amount of artillery pieces here or there, you know? And what it is, is it's, a, they're not trying to make an immediate threat. They're trying to present a very latent threat and convince the Americans that don't you prefer it stay very latent? That's what they're doing. And so then they say, our demands are simple. We want to promise that you're not going to bring Ukraine into NATO. And now that Donald Trump tore up the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, again, the guy that wanted to get along with Russia was 
essentially, I guess, coerced by the empire itself into taking all these hawkish stances. So he tore up the INF tree. In fact, I'll tell you, uh, I know this from talking with Charles Freeman and others, that they say that the Russians really did violate the INF treaty first. It's the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, the medium range missile treaty that Reagan signed in 87 that kept medium range nukes out of Europe this whole time, 30 years, um, 35. Um, and they say, and it's kind of unproven, but it's suspected um, and I guess likely or very possible that the Russians actually broke the treaty first. And then the Americans said, aha, you're breaking the treaty. And instead of saying, let's get back in talks right now and save it, they said, we're tearing it up. And the reason why is because the Americans also want to start deploying mid-range nuclear missiles, but not in Europe, just like the Russians. They want them for China. The, the right. Russians want these medium range missiles for their frontier with China, which they get along pretty well with China these days, but still. And the Americans also want them to ring China with medium range missiles. So they're willing to tear up this treaty that keeps medium range nukes out of Europe in order so they can put them in the Far East. But now Putin is saying, hey, look, you tore up the treaty where you promised to keep medium range nukes out of Europe. And it just so happens that the anti-ballistic missile missiles that America has installed in Poland and have the radar stations in Romania, those are fired from the MK-41 missile launcher. And Putin has said this specifically over and over again. This is a dual-use missile launcher. It can fire, and it's the same thing with our Aegis ships in the Baltic Sea, in the Black Sea. These missile launchers can be used to fire anti-ballistic missile missiles, and they can also be used to fire Tomahawk cruise missiles tipped with H-bombs. And Putin is saying, I want in writing that you're not going to deploy medium-range nukes in Eastern Europe. And I'm telling you now, you try to do it in Ukraine, I'll, I'll run roughshod right over the thing. I yeah. want to promise that you're not going to bring Ukraine into NATO. Now, people keep saying, that this is the big ask, but that's the big ask in the sense of it's kind of the, the smokescreen. What, in other words, Putin knows that he is not going to get a treaty where America promises to never, ever bring Ukraine into NATO. He's not going to get that. And he knows he's not going to get that. But presumably he's willing to settle for very firm assurances that Ukraine will not be brought into NATO. And Biden has already said that, look, nobody's talking about bringing Ukraine into NATO. And I believe on the December 30th phone call, he said, we definitely won't any time in the next 10 years, which is past the date of the expiration of his presidency, even assuming his reelection. So the indefinite future here. Um, and he also said, oh, missiles, we have no intention of putting anti-missile missiles or any other medium range missiles into Ukraine. And then it just leaked yesterday. I don't know if you saw it, but um, we'll be running it on antiwar.com. I think it's probably already up on the top of the front page. And it'll be uh, Ray McGovern has a new piece about it for tomorrow where um, it leaked to a Spanish newspaper, the American response. And I have Biden that. I have there, that leak. Yeah. Uh -huh. So Biden yeah. in there says, not only are we willing to give you assurances that we will not put these dual use missile launchers into Romania and Poland we are willing to talk about establishing a verification system. 
so that yep. you can rest assured that we are not deploying tomahawks here. Now, just get back in the damn treaty. Just re-sign yep. the INF treaty. And instead, I guess they're not going to do that. I think the Russians are pushing for that. And the Americans are saying, well, we won't get back on the INF treaty. Now, this is the terrible, evil, horrible, reckless Donald Trump who would do such a thing. Why can't Biden just get back in the deal, right? He's apparently, they're now finally trying to get back in the Iran deal. Their whole idea is that Donald Trump is the greatest aberration that ever happened to the U.S. presidency. Well, fine. Undo the horrible things he did and then just blame those things on him and move on then. We need that INF treaty. Ronald Reagan signed that INF treaty. And I mean, it was one of the most heroic things that any man had ever done when they went and hammered that thing out and pulled all the Pershings and all the uh, medium range missiles out of Europe. For them to go back on this now is completely crazy. Um, So anyway, that's the true nature of what's going on here is that the American government has, you know, especially, well, W. Bush um, with the Orange Revolution, but then especially ever since Obama uh, did the coup of February 2014 and then all through the Trump years and into the, through the first year of Joe Biden, this has all been American aggression and provocation putting essentially painting the Russians into this corner where they have to do something. And look, I encourage people, you know, there's so much propaganda about this, this thing, you know, but just go and actually look at, for example, Oliver Stone's interviews with Vladimir Putin. Anybody can watch these on YouTube um, or wherever Amazon prime or whatever it is. They're, They're easy to watch. And like, yeah, the guy's a politician and a pretty ruthless head of state, a former intelligence official. You know, he's no wilting lily or anything, but he's also not a raving madman. He also is essentially, you know, they say he's such a sociopath. Well, good. Apparently he's an emotionless kind of a creature. And no matter how much the Americans provoke him, he says, you know, our American partners sometimes make decisions that we disagree with, and we wish that they would think twice about the way that they do things. And he just absolutely stays diplomatic and polite no matter what the whole time. But he says, listen, Oliver Stone, you ring my country with anti-missile missiles from dual-use launchers, you kind of put me in a tough position here. And Stone says, listen, man, you know that ballistic missile defense is just a boondoggle in America. This is the politics of American capitalism, right? Is contracting. Pentagon contracting is how these corporations reach into the taxpayers' honeypot and take their billions. And so, come on, we're not really trying to achieve a first strike capability against you, Putin. We're just, you know, getting some money stolen. And Putin goes, yeah, I know that. But still. What am I supposed to do, Oliver Stone? I, you know, you're surrounding my, you're, you're undoing mutually assured destruction in favor of a first strike capability. My job is I cannot allow that. Okay, yep. this is fair. All right. And then what did he do? And this is W. Bush's fault because it was W. Bush that tore up the anti-ballistic, uh, uh, the anti-ballistic missile treaty uh, in 2002. And uh, or 2001. And um, yeah, right after Putin called on September 11th and said, I'm your humble servant. What can I do for you? Our airspace is open to you. Our former bases in the stands are open to you. Whatever we can do to help you kill bin Laden and his friends, we're your humble servant. Like two months later, before the year was even over, Bush tears up the anti-ballistic missile treaty and makes an absolute monkey out of him. Um, 
and 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 started this whole process of putting these missiles into Ukraine and the Czech, uh, pardon me, into the Czech Republic and uh, and uh, Romania and Poland, and claiming that this is to protect Poland from a first strike from Iran. Uh, with when W. Bush first said that, I can't find this anywhere. I looked for it everywhere. I couldn't find it anymore. But I I remember this that Bush at one of these G7 or G8 meetings, I'm pretty sure it was a G8 meeting, but it was some meeting in Europe where Bush goes, listen, the reason we got to do this is we got to protect Poland from Iranian attack. And the place just busted out laughing. They couldn't help themselves. They just started laughing because that's completely stupid, right? But then Obama comes in and Obama goes, yeah, we're doing this because of Iran. And everybody's like, oh yeah, everybody knows the centuries long ongoing enmity between Iran and Poland. (laughs) Yeah. Iran, which doesn't have <laughs> missiles that can get anywhere near Poland and doesn't have nukes and is not even pursuing nukes to shoot at anyone at all. You know, um, yeah, I'm sure that's what's going on here. And, uh, oh, I'm so sure that, you know, Putin and his military and foreign policy establishment were completely bamboozled by that, too. Oh, don't worry, boys. They say it's for Iran, not us. As they're putting <laughs> they're in the ability this way, not that way. Don't worry. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the, thing's, the whole thing's crazy. And now, so here's shoe on the other foot real quick. What if America had lost the Cold War and Reagan had bankrupted us and our economy had fallen and failed in the 80s and it was the Soviets who were triumphant and the Warsaw Pact had gone on to absorb all of the former NATO states of Western Europe. And then they came over here and they started absorbing the states of Latin America. Brazil and Argentina and Chile and then up into Central America. Now they're moving on Mexico and Canada and they're using Nazis to overthrow the government in Ottawa. And then they're declaring war. Oh, and they promised to kick the Americans out of all their naval bases in Alaska. And uh, which, you know, um, President Nixon had gifted to Canada in the Cold War when it was part of our NATO alliance and it didn't make a difference. Right now they're going to kick us out of Alaska. And they're going to declare war against the dissidents in British Columbia, in Vancouver, who refused to accept the new coup d'etat junta and kill 15,000 of them in this war. And you know, as I described this right here, that in uh, your audience all agrees too, everybody knows, we would go to nuclear war. America would not allow that to happen whatsoever. Um, and, and we probably wouldn't even send conventional forces into Canada. We probably would just nuke Moscow. We would probably go to general nuclear war if they dared to even consider this kind of thing. And remember, when they put missiles, medium-range missiles in Cuba, Jack Kennedy said in no uncertain terms, I will burn this entire planet to the ground before I let you keep medium-range missiles in Cuba. Get them out of there now. And that was a level of brinksmanship the Americans were willing to go to on the installation of nuclear missiles in Cuba. And so... And, but meanwhile, America is Christopher Reeve, Superman, the nicest guy who ever lived, maybe Jesus during the Sermon on the Mount, right? But Vladimir Putin is the world's most dangerous psychopathic killer. And he's yeah. supposed to just sit there and take it. He's supposed to just accept that America can do whatever it wants in what used to be Russia's sphere of influence, that they are to have no sphere of influence whatsoever, where our sphere of influence is the entire sphere of the planet Earth. And where the Monroe Doctrine said, you stay out of the Americas and we'll stay out of Europe. Now the Monroe Doctrine says, 
you stay out of everywhere. The planet belongs to us and anybody. And, and look, all we're doing is spreading peace, right? Like they say, they call an alliance with the America. They call it extending our nuclear umbrella. Well, mm -hmm. first of all, we don't have an effective missile defense. That's an umbrella that protects anyone from incoming nukes. That's not what that means. It's just a figure of speech, meaning that if you're an, al an ally of America, no one will ever, ever, ever mess with you because they know that that will then be messing with us and no one would ever, ever, ever mess with us. So therefore, we can expand NATO despite H.W. Bush's promises in 1991. We can expand NATO right up to Russia's borders into the Baltic states, Latvia and Lithuania and Estonia. We can threaten to bring in former Soviet Georgia, which is in between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea and the Southern Caucasus Mountains, which not one in 10,000 Americans could find on a map for you, to bring into the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which was created to defend Western Germany, France, Belgium, Denmark, Spain, and Britain from the USSR that doesn't exist anymore and hasn't this whole time. And I'll shut up after one more thing, which is I'll urge everybody to check out my Twitter feed at Scott Horton Show and click on media. You know, you can do like uh, likes and retweets or whatever. You click on media there and just page through because in just the last few days, I've posted a few things of interest for you there, including awesome. um, an open letter written in 1997 by some of America's most prominent war hawks including Paul Nitza, Robert McNamara, and Stansfield Turner, Richard Pipes, and uh, Edward Lutwak, all condemning Clinton's planned NATO expansion and saying you should not do this, and with explicit reasoning why. That this alliance was created to deter the USSR. It does not exist. And so, but it will be taken by Russia as still being an anti-Russian alliance. Um, and so we'll be picking a fight with the new government of the people who just overthrew the communists for us. It says it'll also raise all this tension between uh, the Eastern European uh, uh, nations that are brought into NATO versus the ones who aren't. It'll heighten ethnic tensions in the regions where there are uh, you know, high levels of Russian populations, Russian-speaking populations in these countries. And it'll lead to tensions about whose side those people want to be on. All these, it has all these predictions about the kind of chaos that'll come from this. And then even better than that is now a word from X. And this is the horrible Thomas Friedman writing in the New York Times in 1998. But he's interviewing George Kennan. And George Kennan was a State Department official, the ambassador to the Soviet Union, I believe, who wrote the anonymous essay uh, on the sources of Soviet conduct for Foreign Affairs, the Journal of the Council on Foreign Relations in 1946. And this was the article that inaugurated the quote unquote containment policy of the Soviet Union. He was the one who coined that phrase and said, we have to contain the Soviet Union by building up all our allies on their periphery and all of these things. And now he gave this interview to Thomas Friedman in 1998, and he's absolutely as mad as hell. And he's said he's just condemning the senators. He says the senators aren't even interested in foreign policy. They just want Polish votes in Illinois or whatever it is. They have these parochial concerns and they don't understand what they're doing. 
He says, don't people see these aren't the communists. These are the men that overthrew the communists for us in the greatest virtually bloodless revolution in world history that ever happened. And now the people who are expanding NATO are saying, I'm paraphrasing pretty broadly here, but you can read it yourself. They're saying, look, we're just expanding peace, right? We're expanding our nuclear umbrella in a way that just means the more people who are under it, the less fighting there will ever be. And so this is all positivity. This is all fine. It's just more people to have dinner parties with on the European cocktail circuit or whatever. But there's not a danger here. This is not against Russia. We like Russia. Now it's fine. And Kennan said, all the people who are telling us that this is not directed at Russia, that this is not meant to threaten them in any way, they are going to provoke Russia to react because it is a military alliance encroaching toward their former sphere of influence. And when they do react, then all the people who are now telling us don't worry about it will then say, see, that's how the Russians are. They're so dangerous. They're so aggressive. And that's why we have to build up our alliance in Eastern Europe to defend Europe from Russian aggression. And it Kennan says, but that's just not right. Yeah. It's us. We met the enemy. It is us. And uh, that is what's going on. So there you go. I mean, there you have it. That's these guys, you know, uh, before NATO expansion ever actually kicked in. The first countries, Poland and Hungary and whoever else, I forget, were brought in in 1999. So this was in 1998. Imagine Robert McNamara. Did I mention McNamara? Paul Nitsa. Yeah. I mean, McNamara was the self-confessed butcher of Asia. This is, you know, one of the most violent Americans who ever lived and in his role in Korea, uh, in, for that matter, Japan, Korea and Vietnam. And he said, this is crazy. We should not do this and sign the open letter saying that we should not be doing this. Paul Nitsa was known as George Kennan's right wing competitor. Uh, Kennan wanted containment. Paul Nitsa wanted rollback. He was the guy that wrote NSC 68 that said essentially America must take the position as world hegemon to and roll back Soviet communism and all this. These were the men who said, don't expand NATO, don't do it. James Baker III and George H.W. Bush, they promised we would not expand NATO one inch east of Germany if Mikhail Gorbachev would allow the reunification of Germany and pull his troops out of, uh, of Eastern Europe. And they broke that promise. Bill Clinton broke that promise. W. Bush and Barack Obama and even Donald Trump brought in Northern Macedonia and Montenegro. Um, but Bush and Obama both uh, brought in numerous countries. Um, Bush brought in the Baltics. Obama brought in the Balkans. And Bush promised in 2008. Oh, one more thing. I, I Oh, this is in my media thingy too. Um, the anniversary was yesterday. Of, uh, it was, uh, first of all, Bush in the Bucharest declaration. No, no, no. That was different. Was it, maybe it was the Vienna thing. I forgot it was called. Maybe it was the Bucharest Declaration of 2008. W. Bush said, we're eventually going to bring in Ukraine and Georgia, and we're putting them on the fast track to join NATO. Then our current secretary, uh, pardon me, our current CIA director, William Burns, was then the ambassador to Russia. And he wrote a memo. Um, this was uh, February the 1st. 2008. 
And because of the heroic Julian Assange rotting in solitary confinement at the hands of the empire in Britain right now, uh, who posted the WikiLeaks online, we know that William Burns wrote back home to the State Department, Nyet means Nyet. And that's the title of the essay. Everyone can find it at wikileaks.org. And it's Burns reporting that I just met with Sergei Lavrov. And Lavrov, of course, always very diplomatic. That's Russia's foreign minister. Lavrov instructed us that, boy, oh boy, are they against America bringing Ukraine into NATO. And in fact, will not stand for it. And see this as their highest security concern. And they want the Americans to know that actually you're not going to bring Ukraine into NATO. In other words, if you do try it, Kiev will be ruled out of Moscow within a week or two and then try to bring them into NATO, punk. That was what he's saying. He's laying down the law. And it was Putin himself. I don't know if this was a a hot mic or I think just he was tattletailed on by an Italian diplomat shortly after that. And he said to the Italian diplomat that, you know, that we could be in Kiev in two weeks. And that is the worst threat that Putin has ever made of war against Ukraine. And that was in 2008 in reaction to Bush promising to bring Ukraine into NATO. And just I mean, what does that tell you? What that tells you is just like America will not allow Canada to be integrated into the Warsaw Pact. Russia has a red line and they will enforce it. And this is it. And America should respect that. You don't have to like Vladimir Putin to understand that. America is in the wrong here. And look, how about this? Bill Clinton and W. Bush and Barack Obama and Donald Trump have been in the wrong. Them and their men, Mike Pompeo. These men have been in the wrong. Eh, is that so hard to accept that Madeleine Albright and Condoleezza Rice (laughs) and Hillary Clinton made bad choices? No, that's the world that we live in. These people do the wrong thing. That doesn't mean, look, I'm a Texan. I'm an American. I'm not partial to any foreign governments. I'm just saying this is the truth, dude. This is all the U.S. government's fault. We don't have to have a relationship with Russia that resembles this kind of contention in any way whatsoever. This whole crisis is made in Washington, D.C. Yeah, I mean, it's from, from a layman's perspective, you think, well, the Berlin Wall falls, Soviet Union's over. Wouldn't NATO just kind of be res- like dissolved at that point and we strike up a new relationship with the new governments of the former Soviet Union and have a have a different kind of uh, a different kind of dynamic in the world? But no, we need right. to keep that going. And, and well, it uh, keeps coming up too that because everybody remembers it's the pop culture references that really you know crop up in everyone's mind is the kid saying to the Terminator but I thought we were friends with the Russians now. And the Terminator says, yeah, but Skynet knew that they still have the most amount of nukes. If you want to kill humanity, you still start a war with Russia anyway. It doesn't matter that we're friends with them now. Yeah, he mispronounced Lockheed Martin, but Skynet was his fine. Yeah, that's fine. Right. Yep, that's right. And look, I'm glad you bring up Lockheed because Lockheed is at the core of this. They're at the center of this. Not It's not just like a rhetorical flourish that like, well, you know, the military industrial complex and all that. But no, quite literally, a single individual human man named Bruce Jackson, executive vice president at Lockheed, spent millions of dollars on this project to create, guess what? The Committee on NATO Expansion. The entire purpose of which was to get rid of Lockheed products, just like any salesman trying to empty out their inventories and refill them again. That was his job. And 
you know, he's the same guy that bankrolled, you won't be surprised, the Committee for the Liberation of Iraq in concert wow. with the neoconservatives and, and made a very close alliance with Richard Pearl and Paul Wolfowitz and Scooter Libby and the worst of the ringleaders of the neoconservative sect that lied us into Iraq War II. This is the very same men who did it. And they did it for the most narrow, short-sighted, narrow-minded, you know, just pocketbook-driven concerns for their own company at the expense yep. of the safety of all of humanity. And, you know, honestly, I've been at this a long time, but there was a subject that I had never quite, like, gotten to. And I, you know, I don't know what I thought of, right? I guess I just hadn't even really thought about it. Um, but it probably wasn't until, like, 2009 or something that it finally came to my attention that you know that the guys that make the H-bombs, the companies that make the H-bombs, it's not the Sandia National Laboratory and Lawrence Livermore Laboratory that make the H-bombs. It's companies. It's Lockheed and Northrop Grumman and Honeywell. They make the H-bombs. Raytheon maybe too, but no. And okay. Raytheon, yep. And they lobby the U.S. government that don't you guys need some more H-bombs? Just sure. the same as any other lobby in America works on the government. You know, the NRA, people always are wondering why the NRA doesn't do a good job of representing gun owners. That's because that's not their job. Their job is selling guns to the government. That's yep. what they lobby for. They represent arms manufacturers and the government is their biggest captive market, you know? Um, and, and, you know, that's just one, but you look at the entire military industrial complex, but look at, you know, Archer Daniels Midland and Monsanto. Look at Citigroup and Goldman Sachs. Look at, you know, the biggest hospital companies and insurance companies in America. These, you know, these are the special interests who rule. And what they do is they send their lobbies, they pay pennies on the dollar to have their lobbyists influence the Congress to write the laws so that they keep getting our money. That's it. And the thing is about it is that everybody knows that. Hell, the same rules apply to Israel and Saudi Arabia, which is why Israel and Saudi Arabia have a hell of a lot more say over American foreign policy than the American people do. And probably as much as Lockheed does. But here's the point I'm getting to. There is no exception when it comes to the nuclear weapons market. And somewhere back in your brain from leftover from when you were a little kid or something, there may be some misconception that H-bombs are a demand-driven business and that the military decides exactly how many H-bombs they need and then they acquire that many and then that's it. Right, what are you telling me? That you have people who make H-bombs influencing the policy to make sure that we have an aggressive foreign policy that requires a permanent stockpile and an ever-growing and an ever-needing maintenance stockpile of nuclear weapons. Yep, that's exactly how it works, all right. And yeah. you can see this. You know, this was just in the news. This made major news last week in mainstream media, major news last week, that the head of Raytheon was recorded on a conference call bragging that all the war in Yemen, the genocide and treason in Yemen and all the tensions in Ukraine. Man, this is great. We're going to have a great quarter this this time, everybody on the conference call. Uh, you know, this is just where their money's at. And um, back to where we were supposed to start anyway, based on your first question. When the Russians seized the Crimean Peninsula, Andrew Coburn, 
the great journalist uh, in Washington, D.C., he had a source that was at a party at Crystal City, which is, you know, military industrial complex headquarters outside of Washington, D.C., outside of the Pentagon in Virginia there. And they, they were, whoever his source was, was at a cocktail party that night. And news came across the wire. The Russians are seizing the Crimean Peninsula. And they all whooped and hollered and laughed and celebrated that it is on. And yet all the military contractors there, wonderful. Yep. Uh, a, a contest between the two most heavily armed thermonuclear superpowers is great for them. Yeah, But meanwhile, absolutely. all of the other 7 billion members of the human species are put at risk over this. Yep. And we know now enough about the effects of nuclear winter to know that if there was a full-scale H-bomb war between America and Russia, that first of all, Northern human civilization would be essentially wiped off the face of the earth in the, in the wars. I guess if Europe stayed out, then they would just have the pleasure of starving with the rest of humanity because the smoke would go up far above the clouds into the stratosphere where the rain cannot rain it out and clean the sky out. And it'd be like the matrix, right? Where they black out the sky, nuclear winter. And you'd have out of the 7 billion people alive today, uh, or seven and a half, whatever it is, we'd be down to low millions, maybe in the very, you know, in Australia and Argentina and the, the very, uh, uh, lowest places in the Southern hemisphere. Um, and I guess the bunkers in Colorado where the scumbags who got us into this mess will be able to have their underground gardens and whatever and live in their, in their you know, underground cities for however many years before all of humanity has to start over again. Going from, you know, with, with literally billions and billions and billions and billions of people starving to death because of the, you just have absolute massive crop fails, failures across the entire planet. And in fact... They say now that they think even a limited nuclear war of a couple of hundred A-bombs between India and Pakistan would be enough to kill billions of people through nuclear winter. And that's nothing like what would happen if it was a full-scale H-bomb exchange between America and its allies and the Russians. Yeah. I think people don't uh, – I think the idea – I mean, I grew up at a time – I grew up during the Cold War. <clears throat> I mean, not – deep deep in the cold war i'm not that old but it was still going on when i was a kid and yeah um i think people don't a lot of people now don't view a nuclear war as a possibility it seems so fantastical and outside of the realm of possibility and i think it partly they just don't understand how close we've come a couple times in history to actually like but for one one officer on a sub uh in the cuban missile crisis we'd have been at war but for one officer in i forget where this was in the soviet union also who there was a computer glitch and they were supposed to they thought we were attacking and he was the only one who was like well i'm not going to trust it but he was supposed to trust he disobeyed orders and right. didn't start global thermonuclear war um this kind yeah. of stuff we've come really really close and it's not it's not out of the realm of possibility that it happens again and this time we don't get lucky. Yeah, and in fact, I mean, there was one where the Air Force accidentally dropped an H bomb over North Carolina, and they later found it where eight out of the nine fail safes had failed, and it was only the ninth Jeez. one that prevented the nuke from going off. But what would have happened if the nuke had gone off? 
they would have accepted responsibility and said, sorry, we accidentally nuked our own country, or they would have blamed it on Russia and escalated right there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. At 50-50, right? At I, best. I, I don't know. I think they would blame, I, I'm going to, I would put my money on blame on Russia, but okay. I think so. <laughs> I think so. Um, rather than take responsibility for just, you know, that kind of level of negligent failure, um, they would yeah. figure out a way to make it somebody else's fault and then have to do something about it. And, you know, I think you're right about the fantastical part in people's imagination. If you look at the think tank studies that talk about war with Russia and China, or you know, read the major news coverage of them in the Wall Street Journal and these kinds of things, they're constantly running war games about what it would be like to have a conventional war with Russia and Eastern Europe and a conventional war at sea with China, say, over Taiwan. And it yeah. goes without saying that they have nukes. Everybody knows they have nukes. But... Then it goes unsaid. It's just completely left out. And you have study after study after study about how we could fight a conventional war. And you can see, like, for the Navy, what fun to kind of try to recreate the Pacific <laughs> battles against Japan in World War II against the Chinese in the Pacific. And we could just do this. And maybe we'd lose a few ships, but so would they and whatever. And then, But just nobody mentions the fact of the H-bombs. They just yeah. remain outside of the discussion. Not that they're, you know, forgotten, but yeah, they're essentially forgotten. They're not part of the discussion of the plan. And you can see why, right? Because if you were at Brookings and you wrote a study that said in one paragraph, well, geez, we can never fight Russia or China under any circumstances whatsoever, period. They're not going to pay you $35,000 for that. <laughs> Right. They're gonna, you're not going to get a you're not going to work at a think tank very long writing studies that say that. And so right. you end up having quite literally years worth of discussions about how we could fight nuclear armed major powers that completely exclude the presence of nuclear weapons as though they don't exist, as though we could fight a war, say a conventional war against Russia in Eastern Europe where one or the other of us wouldn't turn to nukes. And it would probably be the Americans first. The Russians, first of all, got a deal about prevailing winds and all of that. They don't want nukes going off in Eastern Europe, um, yep. uh, much less in their own country. But also, they have, they're there, and we're here. So if America's going to fight a war in Eastern Europe, how in the hell are we going to do that? How are we going to get all of the men and material and supply and everything we need over there to fight a conventional war? We can't. So we resort to tactical nukes is the most likely scenario there, right? And then they project all this crazy stuff about, I mean, I don't know where this really originated. They claim that this is what the Russians have as a doctrine and the Russians deny it. But the Americans claim that the Russians doctrine is escalate to de-escalate. And that if we get in a conventional war with Russia, what Russia will do was is they'll set off one A-bomb, a tactical nuke, and they'll nuke, uh, you know, an American ally asset somewhere in Poland or something. And they'll say, see, we mean business. And that one nuke is supposed to send the message to the West that they'll use even bigger nukes if we don't back down now. Well, we're not going to put up with that. We're going to nuke and we're going to escalate to de-escalate. If they try to nuke to escalate to de-escalate, well, we're going to nuke Belarus. And then they better de-escalate because we're the ones who will escalate. Yeah. 
Well, if, if that's their idea of what the Russians think and that that's stupid, that'll never work. And if you try it, then we'll escalate right back on you. Then how could they think that it's any smarter when it's their exact same position? And that then the Russians, again, Vladimir Putin, the most dangerous criminal mastermind, psychopath, evil killer, thrower of journalists out of windows in the whole world, he's going to not react. If we nuke Belarus, then he'll climb under his desk and say, oh, geez, we shouldn't have ever, uh, you know, stepped to the Americans. They can never intimidate us, but we can definitely intimidate them. And the whole thing is stupid and crazy. You it is tell. Dr. Strangelove, by the way. Like, it is Dr. Strangelove. It's the same. It I mean, it's, hey, look, it's Dan crazy. Ellsberg, Dan Ellsberg, who, you know, is famous for leaking the Pentagon Papers. He was at Rand. He was a nuclear war planner. That's his newest book. It's called The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. And, boy, that's a whole other discussion. But I'll tell you, when he and uh, Herman Kahn went and saw... Dr. Strangelove at the theater. They walked out into the bright afternoon sun and both said to each other, Jinx, you owe me a Coke. That wasn't a satire. That was a documentary. Oh, geez. That's how it is. And right up in, to the point where like one captain could start a nuclear war and no one would be able to stop him. All this hype about the president and the nuclear football notwithstanding. And there are thousands of people throughout the bureaucracy who could start a war. Yeah. No one could stop them, especially out in the Pacific. I, I want to, if if I still, I don't know how much time I've got, but if, if I if I can still bug you, I want to I want to bug you about a couple things. One is, I want to ask about because I think our audience would be interested in this. Uh, right after the, um, right after the the I'll, I'll call it the revolution, but right after the coup in Kiev in in 2014, you had. Um, you had the Bursama Holdings, and uh-huh. uh, I've heard you I'll talk right about this before. Can we, let's talk about sure. what they did and what that signals about who's on what side and what interests right. are aligned here. Sure. So back to the FDEU phone call between Victoria Newland and Jeffrey Pyatt. Newland says, listen, well, right along the lines of FDEU. We're pushing the Germans out of the way. We're going to do this ourselves. And I just got word from Jake Sullivan in the vice president's office. That's our current national security advisor, was then national security advisor to vice president Biden. I just got word from Jake Sullivan that the vice president is willing, and we're going to get him on a conference call with the participants tomorrow to give him an attaboy and to get the deets to stick. And he's the one, as they put it, uh, in White House terminology, Biden held the Ukraine brief in the Obama administration. He was in charge of America's Ukraine policy, and he was leading the plot to overthrow the government. Again, this phone call was leaked, presumably by the Russians, two weeks before the coup, and then they did it anyway. Right. Caught red-handed, did it anyway. But, and this part is speculation on my part, I don't know this, but it's the obvious answer, Right is that the guys at, Burm- at Burisma, they had heard the FDEU phone call and had heard that the vice president was so involved in this. And, you know, maybe they knew f- through other means. Uh, I don't know, yep. but that's the most obvious way for them to know that. Well, the thing with Burisma was 
they had been closely connected to the previous government that Biden had overthrown. So they were afraid that the new government was going to persecute them and take it out on them. So in order to protect themselves, did they hire the new prime minister Yatsenyuk's brother or son? No, they hired the son of the vice president of the United States of America as an insurance policy to ingratiate themselves in with the new government. We might've been friends with the last guys, but we're cool. Joe Biden says we're cool. So don't come after us now. That was why they hired Hunter Biden and paid him first. They said 50. That was a lie. They paid him $85,000 a month. That's a million dollars a year. Essentially just as protection, right? The Americans are just gangsters, man. That's how they roll. That's how they do business. And now Putin, pardon me, Biden, America's Putin, Biden is on camera at the Council on Foreign Relations saying, yeah, so I went over there and I told them I want the prosecutor fired. And if you don't fire him, then you're not going to get your billions of dollars of relief money. I'm the vice president of the United States. So I can withhold that relief money. You're going to do what I say. And huh, lo and behold, they called me up, said the prosecutor's been fired. And I got on the plane and left. Hardy, har, har, har. Now, if you go to Snopes or factcheck.org or PolitiFact or NBC News, they'll tell you that, oh, no, this is totally taken out of context. Joe Biden couldn't possibly mean that he wanted this prosecutor fired because the prosecutor was looking at prosecuting Burisma for their criminal activity. And the reason we know that that's impossible is because all of those investigations had already been closed. And so there was no investigation for them to be extorted into closing. Well, that's just not true. And the great journalist Matt Taibbi, who lived in Russia for a time in the 1990s and speaks Russian, made some phone calls and did the work. And he's got great journalism. I'm not sure if this made Rolling Stone or if this was just at his Substack. I think this is in the Rolling Stone before he left Rolling Stone was he went and found that actually there were a number of separate investigations into Burisma at that time, some of which were dormant, some of which were active, none of which had been completely closed. And that it all the facts exactly fit with the original accusation there that this prosecutor right. was looking at Burisma and Biden said, well, what the hell is the point of doing a coup if my guys aren't sitting in the attorney general's chair? Get rid of this guy. And so they got rid of the guy and replaced him yep. as Taibbi again points out. Replace Biden says, no, no, the PolitiFact and the fact checkers and Facebook and whoever all say, oh, no, no, you're missing disinformation that um, they were just trying to weed out corruption. Oh, really? The guy that they replaced him with was far more corrupt and documented as such all over the place as a far more corrupt operator than the guy they got rid of, who actually did have something of a reputation for trying to do the job, honestly, of tackling political corruption in that country. And so there you have it right there. And then then the president of the United States was impeached impeached. I know if you like took that year off, you wouldn't believe me. This guy Horton is full of it. This makes no sense. What are you talking about? They impeached for the third time ever. Uh, an American president was impeached by the U.S. House of Representatives, in this case, for holding up an arms deal to the Nazi-infested armed forces of Ukraine, armed forces that his predecessor was afraid to arm after empowering said Nazis. 
And he temporarily held up that arms deal because he was trying to pressure the government of uh, the American installed coup d'etat junta in Kiev into reopening those investigations into the criminality and corruption of Burisma, which should have been open and running all along, right? Yeah. Uh, Trump was doing, Trump was unobstructing justice. And, <laughs> and that's which, what he got impeached Biden for. had obstructed, right? <laughs> and they impeached him for it. It's, it's so ridiculous. And the idea also that, that we're supposed to believe that when Biden says, get rid of the prosecutor who's investigating the cash cow that my son works for, that's getting rid of corrupt. It's because he cares so much about corruption. That's why he was doing it. Yeah. No, no, no. All those investigations were dormant. <laughs> and we know that because some intelligence official claimed that to the post once and everybody repeated it after that. And that's all you need to know, you know? <laughs> So where are we today? We've today we heard Putin made some. So we re, I read the documents that were leaked from uh, the Spanish language stuff. I don't remember uh, where exactly they came from. Biden sent a few thousand troops to Europe. Um, and and by the way, in those documents, we didn't talk about this, but in those documents, the United States refers to Crimea as part of of Ukraine. Yes, that's and true. I mean, which, I which seems a little bit like saber rattling. Um, right. Yeah. They, in fact, they they demand that Russia withdraw also from Georgia, which South Ossetia is no longer part of Georgia. Sorry, guys. Just like with the Crimean Peninsula, you know, the Americans shouldn't have picked that fight. The, the W. Bush administration gave Mikhail Shakashvili reason to believe that they would have his back if he started that war in 2008. And so he invaded South Ossetia, which was occupied by Russian peacekeepers who were there under a deal signed with our European Union allies. Um, not in a, in, you know, aggressive invasion occupation. They were peacekeepers there under the law and the Georgians attacked them and started killing them. And the Russians then came through the tunnels and over the mountains and, uh, you know, re-seized South Ossetia, marched part of the way into Georgia and then stopped. They could have taken all of Georgia at that time. There was no way that America was going to do anything about it. And they stopped. Um, they just, and then in fact, they backed up again back to the borders of South Ossetia. So, you know, it seems to me South Ossetia belongs to the South Ossetians. You know, I'm for secession and autonomy whenever possible. But even if you say, nuh-uh, that belongs to Georgia no matter what, well, fine. Maybe George W. Bush should not have done a color-coded revolution in 2003 and overthrown Edward Shevardnadze and replaced him with this lunatic Mikhail Shakashvili who would dare start a fight with the Russian Federation. And by the way, it's reported by um, uh, Ron Suskind, and I forget who the other one was, but there was another reporter who reported the same story, that um, during the National Security Council Principals Committee meeting, that Dick Cheney said, we should attack the Russians, and we should shoot missiles at the Russians coming through the tunnels under the Caucasus Mountains and collapse the tunnels and kill them. And by that point, this is in the summer of 08, and at that point, Bush was over it and was tired of this guy and said to the rest of the cabinet, anybody else here agree with Vice? We ought to start a war with Russia. And everybody kept their hands down. And he said, OK, thanks. On to the next subject. We're not doing that. And went on. And so the cool, patient wisdom of George W. Bush saved us from a war. His famous cool, you know, patient wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that A war that his right hand man, his vice president. And if he had dropped dead of a heart attack, the guy who would have replaced him wanted to start at that time.
Yeah. You know? Um, so yes, you're right. That is a part, that's a, a problem. I, I did a little tweet thread when I read through the counter proposal here today. And that is a problem that it begins on the wrong foot, demanding that Russia withdraw from what they call occupied territories. Crimea is right. not occupied territory. It's part of the Russian Federation again. Those are the lumps. You can dislike them if you dislike them, but those are the facts of the universe. You know, Rand McNally, I think, changed the color of the Crimean Peninsula on their maps and got in political trouble over that. But they're just reflecting reality, man. That is what it is. And, you know, the Americans can bomb Serbia and break Kosovo off, and that's just over Russia's dead body. You know, those are the Russians' close allies, the Serbs. Um, and we can do that, and that's just fine. That's different. That's us, not them. And and thousands of people were killed in that, by the way, unlike what happened in Crimea. Um, Are you but, optimistic that Putin doesn't want to do anything? Like, I don't know. You you, you at the beginning, yeah. you kind of expressed a little bit of optimism that like maybe Biden's compromising, but he sends troops. We sent this response that to me looks kind of shitty. Uh, yeah, but it's an neat little thing, right? He's sending 3000 guys. In fact, I just got a okay. message from an army officer friend of mine said he's going. Um, okay. But where are they going? They're going to the Baltic states or to Poland or to Hungary or something, and then they're going to cool their heels, and yeah. then they're going to be withdrawn again in a little while. They're not a okay. they're not a fighting force. You know, America's not sending tanks to Germany, and we're not, um, you know, arming up, mobilizing for war with Russia right now. We're just not. And Good. Putin has said, I mean, uh, Biden has said repeatedly that worst case scenario that Putin rolls all the way to Lviv, we're not intervening. Ukraine is okay. not an ally in NATO and we are not obligated to defend it. He said that in no uncertain terms. So again, back to the bottom line, when Putin says, I want a treaty that promises you'll never bring Ukraine into NATO, he knows he's not going to get that. What he really wants is these extremely firm assurances that it ain't going to happen anytime soon and that we're definitely not going to deploy Tomahawk cruise missiles in Eastern Europe. Right. And, and maybe back off the that. Crimea issue. Yeah, know, yeah, Crimea is not in there, right? I mean, they, they accuse Russia at the beginning and say, get out. But they don't, in all their different proposals for different kinds of talks throughout the thing, they never not say, there. we want talks over you withdrawing from Crimea. They know that that's a non-starter. So, okay. Um, it, I think, uh, look, I think that the, the threat of Russian invasion of Ukraine was overblown by the Americans in the first place. And then I think, that thank goodness that Joe Biden is as weak as he seems and is climbing down exactly as he should be climbing down. And meanwhile, the, the Republican Party is attacking him for being weak when they're supposed to be attacking him for being reckless. Yep. And, you know, they just, the W. Bush wing, they can't get it through their head that the American Republican right are no longer W. Bush interventionists. They are America firsters and they might like kicking butt, but also they've got lots of butt kicking out of their system right now. And they're tired of this and they don't want this. And well, I think you know, Washington's the bigger the threat the, than Moscow to them. Right. I mean, that's yes, the truth right now. That's exactly right. I mean, look, here's the bitter, bitter pill. America has no enemies at all. None. Every power on the planet is our friend. The Chinese are our second biggest trading partners after Canada, more than Mexico. And we've gotten along with them for 50 years, half a century since Nixon and Kissinger went over there, shook hands with Mao and said, look, we have our differences, but let's put them aside and, and work together. 
We're talking about a billion people. We're talking about a seventh of humanity there. What are you going to yep. do about it? This planet's not big enough for us and them? Well, it's going to have to be. Okay? And then, and then there's the Russians who, again, no matter what we do, Putin says, oh, our American friends and partners, our American friends and partners, our American friends and partners. You know, yep. it's essentially um, a conservative, you know, some from conservative to nationalist, right-wing, white Christian government with a red, white, and blue flag that's trying to be part of European civilization. And we keep kicking them in the face and telling them that they they're Asiatics and belong, you know, in to some other civilization and, and are not really part of Europe. And it's just crazy and stupid and wrong. There's no reason we should be doing that at all. And then just picture the globe in your head, spin the globe. There are no powers in Latin America anywhere. The USA is the only power in the Americas. Brazil will never have a blue water Navy ever. They're just, they don't have the capability and they don't have the intention. That is it. That is it. Yep. Africa, there are no powers. The most powerful nation in Africa is Egypt and they are 100% lock, stock and barrel owned by the United States of America. Every nation in Europe is our friend. The one that they hate the most other than Russia is Orban's Hungary, but he's a member of NATO. So, yep. okay. And then who do you got? Iran? Are you kidding me? The Ayatollah with the GDP the size of the southern half of New Jersey or something like that, who has no <laughs> offensive naval or air force or, or infantry capability whatsoever, who at worst has medium range conventional missiles that are a deterrent against regional powers, are no offensive threat to anyone whatsoever. Um, Next, some is going to start whining to me about Hezbollah, the pseudo little tiny militia pretender state in southern Lebanon. Yeah, I'm quaking in my boots. Then you got India, a billion people, desperately poor, still with this backwards caste system and communism and just crazy government control over their economy. They're going to stay poor for the next 300 years, man. They're not but they're coming. still our friends. They're still our friends, but they just don't have power to project. Yep. And then that's it. Who do you got left? Indonesia, Australia, spin the globe. That's yep. it. We're back to America again. You got the lost continent of Atlantis or you got Mars attacks from the movies. But other than that, like what if, what if everybody just take a deep breath? What if it just didn't have to be this way at all? What if we didn't have to have American militarism at all? What if we could just go ahead and adopt the precepts of a limited constitutional republic that, as James Madison said specifically, presupposes a state of peace, except in the most dire emergencies of self-defense of our life and our liberty, our Bill of Rights. Um, it could be. And I'll tell you, man, 30 years ago, Ronald Reagan's ambassador to the United Nations, Gene Kirkpatrick, who is a neoconservative, a former socialist turned right wing hawk Reaganite. Uh, she was the one who wrote the article in Foreign Affairs about how it's okay to back right-wing fascist uh, authoritarian tyrants around the world because at least they're not totalitarians like the USSR, right? That was her position, right-wing hawk. Then when the Cold War ended, she wrote an essay for the national interest that said we can be a normal country in a normal time. And now it would be wise for us to shed the burdens of superpower status and just be a humble, commercial, limited constitutional republic and share the responsibilities of 
global governance with the our other friends and powers of the earth. The Soviet Union is gone. The wicked witch is dead. It doesn't have to be this way. And then, yeah. you know what they do? They waited. I mean, the Soviet Union wasn't even gone yet, right? The Soviet Union fell apart Christmas Day 1991 was the last day. But America had already moved to the Middle East by January of that same year. They'd already gone to Iraq um, and expanded the footprint and declared the new world order, unipolar American world empire over the planet. And, you know, I don't know exactly how, how she felt about Iraq War One, but I know she supported Iraq War Two. And the idea that we could be a normal country in a normal time was gone forever. Somehow now we had to stop Saddam Hussein with the clean shaven chin and the French beret from passing nukes he didn't have to Osama bin Laden in the Obi-Wan Kenobi robe and the beard down to his knees. Who the CIA trained in the first place, but those of course, yeah. And and who Saddam Hussein was deathly terrified of and had no relationship whatsoever, which the CIA had told Bush just after September 11th and repeatedly uh, after that in the run-up to the war. And in fact, we know now that they had two extremely high-level spies inside Saddam Hussein's government, Naji Sabri, and I forgot his first name, Habush. And that was the head of intelligence and the foreign minister, the highest wow. level people in Hussein's cabinet. And they told the American CIA over and over again, we got no ties to Al-Qaeda. We got no weapons whatsoever, swear to God. They knew they were lying the whole time. I mean, this is what's happened. I think I think we're it's a sad story of we spun up this enormous military industrial complex, to use Eisenhower's words. We spun up this enormous deep state military industrial complex. And when we no longer had an enemy, we just started creating them. Yep. Uh, and instead of spinning it down, taking the peacetime profits, stop, you know, <laughs> stop taxing our citizens so much, stop uh, you know. Spending so much money on national defense, instead we just looked for people to bomb, uh, yep. and we're still there. I know. I mean, imagine what I mean. Think about. Remember back in the 1990s when they were still desperately searching around for an enemy. For a while, it was South American cocaine dealers. Oh yeah, we're supposed yeah. to stand in. Pablo Escobar had, was the problem. We didn't have a war on terrorism yet, so it had to be something. They said, you know, the Ayatollah could make missiles that could deliver nukes here probably in like 35 or 40 years if he tries really hard. Huh, I don't know. That's not very scary. So what they do, they went out, they pretended, they even made movies, right? Like they made like uh, Harrison Ford uh, blockbusters about America's war, yep. you know, with the army and the air force yep. against drug businessmen yep. because it had to be something, you know? Yep. And it's just crazy. I mean, you think about, you know, I, I, um, I cite in the book um, a guy from Princeton University, calls himself an economic geographer, who talked about okay. the amount of money that had been invested in providing security for the Persian Gulf since the inauguration of the Carter Doctrine in 1980. And he said, from 1980 through 2007, that America had, I think his words were, misallocated $10 trillion. Holy crap. On providing security, or was it seven? I'm going to go with seven because that's the more conservative it number. It doesn't my matter. <laughs> I mean. So we spent $7 trillion we didn't need securing the Persian Gulf when, as he put it, 
the transport of oil supplies in and out of the Persian Gulf was never in jeopardy. So, you know, there was the tanker war during the Iran-Iraq war for a moment there and everything. But again, that was America arming both sides in that battle during that. Right. Um, and uh, even taking Iraq's side after Saddam bombed an American ship. Um, uh, uh, but anyway, um, for the vast majority of this time, there's no threat whatsoever. And everybody in the region has one interest overriding all other interests. And that is keeping those sea lanes open so they can sell their oil to the world market. And here we spent $7 trillion when we didn't even spend that much on Middle Eastern oil. We spent $7 trillion securing oil that we weren't even buying, uh, right? We're securing it so they can what? So they can sell it to China. Um, that's what Donald Trump said. Donald Trump says, why are we patrolling the Middle East when the, all this oil is going to the Chinese? Which was right. We don't even buy Middle Eastern oil. Well, that was between 80 and 07. So what about when W. Bush embarks on the terror war and blows another eight to $10 trillion in the Middle East in the name of establishing, establishing and securing American hegemony in a region where if we just walked away, everything would still be fine anyway. And in fact, when Biden made the slightest kind of hints at backing off his support for Saudi in the war in Yemen, for example, the Saudi, first of all, the UAE sent a guy straight to Tehran. And the Saudis then sent their guys to Baghdad to meet with the Iranians in Baghdad. And they immediately started talking with the Iranians as soon as America started backing away. You know, and they just act like, no, we have to hold the whole world down or else it'll all explode into chaos. But look where all the chaos is coming from. Yeah, Who's killed two us. million people in the last 20 years? Not Vladimir Putin and not Xi Jinping, you know, it, uh, Jinping. It's the Americans who've done it. Yeah, we we not only directly, but just by arming people, I mean, yep. arming both sides of wars constantly. Uh, I, I wasn't going to read a bunch of super chats, but this one is is, I think, a good question. And I, I mean, I think I know the answer and you're probably on the same page. But someone says USA's enemies are just shadowy elites now, pretty much. Right. Is that? Yeah, that's right. And and look, I mean, the, the real global elite, the most uh, wealthy and powerful people on the planet and this has been remarked upon for many years now, that they just all have so much more in common with each other than they have with us. And so the world is still divided by these nation states and these politicians still control these nation states, but they don't really identify with the populations of their own countries. They really identify only with each other, their own interests, their own ideas, their own consensus. And then they're stuck with us. They gotta figure out how to drag us along you know, kicking and screaming to accomplish whatever goals that they have in mind. It's, you know, as the Trilateral Commission put it back in 1973, it's the crisis of democracy. The crisis being that there is democracy and that when people <laughs> vote, sometimes they disagree with what we want to do. And that Idiot. really pisses us off a lot. And so how are we going to confront this crisis? You know? It's well, I mean, uh, we saw this. There's a video clip, the World Economic Forum. I forget who was speaking, but just the other day, someone speaking at the WEF, ref she referred to the her and her comrades as the elites. They she called themselves, she they they call themselves the elites. She's like, yeah. Well, the elites, well, people don't trust us. 
and the non-elites don't right, trust the elites. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. don't like us anymore. And what are we going to do about it? You know? Yeah. Or how are we going to get them to obey anyway? You know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yep. Man. Well, uh, look, I've I've taken a lot of your time, Scott. So um I've had a lot of fun. Thanks for this having is, me. This is you are. I mean, I love I love what you have to say. I love you're just a fountain of knowledge on this stuff. Um, and uh, I wish that we didn't need your expertise anymore because we could just stop doing all this crap around the world right. and you could go smoke pot or do something else. I don't know. But uh, as long as we're doing it, I'm glad that we have someone around who is keeping track of all this. Uh, I, I really am trying to put myself out of business, but I'm not very good at it. I admit. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, can you remind people where they can uh, get your book, how they can find you and, and follow you online and stuff? Sure. So um, my books are Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And they're both also available in audiobook now as well. I'm proud to say that my uh, my Afghanistan book is endorsed by Colonel Douglas McGregor and Noam Chomsky. So wow. uh, that'll give you a kind of a taste. Chomsky said it was the best book on Afghanistan he ever read. And uh, McGregor said wow. that he tried to recommend it to the Army War College because he wants all the Army officers to have to read it. So I'm pretty proud of that one. Yes to that. Do, you, do you think they'll say yes to that? <laughs> no, I'm sure they told him no. Um, but uh, he did recommend it to them, though. Um, and then Enough Already is, uh, that's every war from Jimmy Carter all the way through the end of Donald Trump, the entire American Middle East catastrophe, one through line all the way through for you. Um, it came out about a year ago. And uh, the, as I say, the audiobook is out. That's all at... Uh, libertarianinstitute.org slash books. And if you hate Amazon, I got links to all the alternatives too, if you get it all the other places as well. Um, and then uh, I'm the editorial director of antiwar.com. And uh, I host the Scott Horton show at scotthorton.org. I got 5,600 something interviews going back to 2003 for you there. Wow. Almost all on foreign policy um, at scotthorton.org and sign up for the podcast feed. And if anybody in your audience lives in LA, I'm on the radio on Sunday mornings on 90.7 KPFK. Wow, they still let you speak to Californians, huh? That's right. You know, I got that story is like everybody goes to California and they either make it or they come home. Well, I got to keep my show and then come home and, and <laughs> live my life anyway. I told my boss, he goes, I said, I'm hired. He goes, yeah, you're hired. I said, okay, I'm going home, but I'm keeping my show. And he goes, ah, hell, go ahead. So I only did about three or four or five live shows there before I turned around and came back to Texas, but I've got to keep my show. That was 12 years ago, 11 years ago. That's awesome. And I got to keep my show in LA ever since. So pretty good cool. deal. Cool. Well, look, thanks again. Um, thanks again for your time. As a reminder for everyone, uh, please invade and annex the subscribe button uh, if you want to help support us, uh, grow the grow the community by sharing the video, share links to Scott's stuff. It's It's awesome. Um, follow him on Twitter. I follow him on Twitter. It's great. Uh, you can get the other side of the, the not the stuff CNN's not telling you about all this stuff and a quick shout out to those of us who support us financially. So thanks to everyone. And, uh, yeah, Scott, thank you one last time. Uh, it's a pleasure. And I'm going to, I'm going to have you, I'm going to try and get you back because, uh, I could probably talk to you for days about some of this stuff. It's amazing. You know what? Give me, uh, email me your mailing address and I'll send you a copy of the book and we'll talk about the middle. Oh, awesome. All right. Well, let's do that. Great. All right. Take care. Bye, everyone. Thanks for spending your time with us today. If you're new to the channel, 
We have a deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from James Lindsay to Brett Weinstein. So go check it out. And please consider supporting the Unsafe Space team by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server, which is open to financial supporters at any level. See you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the cathedral. Pay no attention to it. Please download this updated list of contagious individuals. Use the hashtag GetBoosted to receive two complimentary Liberty Pellets. Mass formation psychosis is just a right-wing talking point. Please purge it from memory and resume your programming. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice courtesy. Never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.